What a Savior. What a Savior indeed. We love the story of a hero. You know, the story of someone who does what's right at risk to his or her own life. Someone who steps in, someone who saves the day. You've seen a movie, you've read a book, and the focus is how the hero will get through. Maybe you have a story of a hero in your life. I've had a few. The first, I don't even know his name. I was seven or eight years old. I was at the municipal swimming pool in Peabody, America. And I got to a point in the pool where I was over my head and I was not a strong swimmer. And I can remember still to this day just the, the sinking feeling as I went under the water. Struggling, grasping, finding no firm foundation and, and panicking as, as my breath within my lungs began to give out and knowing that I was sinking. And in that moment of panic and paralysis, a hand reached down into the water, probably a foot, and grabbed me and pulled me up in one heroic act. And uh, kind of shook it off. I, I, I said thank you and went and tried to recollect my thoughts and calm my heart. That man saved me that day. He didn't know it. But he did. I remember the story of my first youth minister. We were a, a youth group. We went, had gone out to the lake together, our small group of 10 or 12. We were playing and enjoying a, a warm June summer day. And as we were playing in the lake, we were kind of got to just playing with each other and being rambunctious as kids do. And one particular teenage girl got a little too far out in the lake. And we didn't know it, but we all knew it the instant she let out a blood-curdling scream and yelled out the name of our youth minister, who was on the shore and he was watching and he just took off running into the water and diving out. He swam as hard as he could, and he saved her. And that's a little more different than my story because uh, the guy who rescued me, had the, he was safe on the side. When you go to rescue someone in the water, there is a danger to yourself because the person who's paralyzed and fearful and thinking they're going to die, if you go out to save them, they will not mean to, but they will push you under the water to save themselves as a purely instinctive reflex. He saved her at risk to himself. We can all think of stories of a hero, someone who saved us. Maybe it was in a dramatic way as I've described, or, or maybe it was in less dramatic ways. It was someone who noticed that you were having a hard time, someone who, who came and, and lent a shoulder to cry on, someone who, who gave you a gift when it was desperately needed, but you were too fearful to act. As I tell the story of a savior and a hero, I, I know that in your mind are the pictures of those who saved you. Maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a grandparent, 
Maybe it was a stranger whose name you don't even know. But everybody loves a hero because of what they do. I had to get permission to tell this story because we're in that phase of life. But seven years ago, my then nine-year-old son did a heroic thing. He and Grace, who at that time would have been about three, were playing in the backyard. And as they were playing, Tyler noticed that a, a bee had landed on Grace's shoulder. Now, she wasn't aware of the danger, but he was. And so in a heroic act, he took a, a towel that he was carrying and swatted the bee off. That was a heroic act. But the bee remembered and came back and stung Tyler right on the wrist. When I got home that day and heard the story, I sat Tyler down and I told him how proud I was of him. Because he did what God designed men to do. To lay down their selves at risk and peril to their own selves for the good and benefit of others. When you think of your life, I would ask you, maybe you've been a hero to someone else. And maybe you wouldn't acknowledge it, as most heroes do. When I asked Tyler for permission to tell the story, it was, you know, the B story. Heroes don't want the credit. They're not looking for it. And maybe you've done that. Maybe you've done acts that are known only by God. But I want to tell you, they're just as important. This morning, I want to tell you about an eternally valiant act. A sacrifice that took a much larger sting. And all of that began in the garden. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, the story of the great fall. When Adam and Eve got in over their heads, and they were sinking, and there was no one that could save them, and they couldn't save themselves, and as they stepped into a world that they had not before known of sin and suffering, God reaches out. And as they have this interaction in the garden, Mankind says, or Adam says, I heard you, the sound of you in the garden, because I was afraid. I was afraid of God, his creator, for the first time, because I was naked. He was exposed. He was vulnerable. He had sin, and he was ashamed of it. God said, who told you this? And then as he begins to blame Eve, as sin often brings blame, and Eve began to point the finger at the serpent, and the serpent was cursed. God makes a pronouncement in this string of punishments that is prophetic. And he tells them, I have a Savior in mind. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head 
and you shall bruise his heel. There's one translation that says he will crush your head. The idea is there's going to be a mutual wounding. In that moment, Adam and Eve had done something that they could not undo. You ever done something that you can't undo? I call them the cringeworthy moments. When you think back to something you said at the wrong time to say it, something you did at the wrong time to do it, or something that you just did and you think, what on earth was I thinking? And you carry that with you because you know that as much as you would like to, you cannot change the past. And God knew that. And so God, being who he is, begin to focus on the future. Now, this, this, this fulfillment would not happen for centuries later, millennia later. But God was faithful in the promise to send a Savior. And the story of the Bible tells us of this coming one, this promised hero. And so what did he come to do? Why was he needed? Well, the Scripture tells us very clearly he was sent to save He was sent to do what we could not do. He was sent to save us. The prophet Isaiah speaking, writing for the Lord, says in chapter 43, verse 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Whether you're talking about Genesis, whether you're talking about the story of of the escape from Egypt, whether you're talking about the story of the, the escape from from evil kings, where they're talking about the story of, of escaping their enemy, there was no story of salvation outside of the Lord. And every single story of rescue shows with us a foreshadowing, a hint, a glimpse of the coming Savior. Think about the story of the ark, when a single vessel would be the, the, the means of salvation or world in a moment of worldwide destruction. Think about the story of the Passover. As the Israelites gather there in the land of Egypt, and they had been through all of these terrible plagues, and again and again Pharaoh said, No, you're not going. No, you're not going. Okay, you can go. No, you're not going. Pharaoh's heart began getting harder and harder, and then in the moments of these perilous times, God pronounced one final plague, the death of the firstborn, and he provided a means of escape. The death of a lamb would be required. The blood of the lamb over the sides and the top of the door, pointing us to the sacrifice needed to to be saved from death. The story of Abraham taking up his only son Isaac being told to go up there and and go and sacrifice your only son whom you love. And as they go up there with the wood and the fire, young Isaac says, Father, where is the sacrifice? And Abram says, God himself will provide. Again and again, it's the story of one who's coming, means of our salvation, the ark. The, the, the perfect lamb who will provide, that God will provide. The sacrifice that would atone. 
And, and as we read through these stories of rescue, you need to know that every single story in these pages that talk about a hero and salvation and rescue point to the rescuer. Point to one who is to come, who will do what no one else could do. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this coming Savior. And 700 years before he would come, in Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words. And I want you to follow along and I want you to listen as we hear from Isaiah. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. As we see those images and as we think about Jesus coming to save, the very natural question is why? Why did he do that? Of course he came to save, but who did he come to save? 
And the answer is that he came to save us. The story of Zacchaeus and Jesus is told in Luke chapter 19, and we always think of the wee little man and the sycamore tree. But there's a deeper lesson. There's a deeper lesson, and I believe the reason that the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is in there. There's a man who's done things that he can't undo. And he wishes that things had gone differently, but, but Jesus brings him and calls him and invites him. And in that moment, Zacchaeus responds in repentance. Lord, I half my goods I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. His response to a Savior was a heart of penitence. And Jesus said this in verse 9. Today, today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. I'm not sure that Zacchaeus knew he was lost. Maybe he did. But, but in that moment, he understood. He didn't feel worthy to be in Jesus' presence. He thought, if I could just get a glimpse, Jesus calls him closer. He said, I want to have a meal with you, Zacchaeus. I want to come into your house. And Zacchaeus finally understood that Jesus wasn't just Savior, Rabbi, Teacher. He was Savior of Him. And he came to seek and to save those which are lost. And Jesus was often highly criticized for those with whom he kept company. And and he reminded them that he did not come for the, the healthy, but the sick. The Apostle John would later write in 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. And I'll start just to give a little context in verse 11. Beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the Savior of the world. That was Jesus' sole purpose. The Messiah's mission was to save. And, and in every story we have of Jesus, we understand that Jesus was by nature a Savior. Whether it was saving Peter from drowning, whether it was saving a woman from bleeding, whether it was showing mercy to a convicted criminal on the cross next to him, Jesus was a Savior. It's what He came to do. But more than that, it was in His nature. He he couldn't not save anyone who needed saving. Anyone who wanted saving, Jesus could and would. 
I love to think about the story of Peter because sometimes we can identify with Peter's struggle. And he does something that no one has ever done before by walking on the water, but then, but then things begin to go awry and he begins to focus on the storm instead of on Christ. And in that great, man, what a story that could have been, he loses it he, and he falls and he stumbles and he begins to sink and he begins to go under the water. But Jesus is just as much Savior then as he ever was. And I like to think that Peter, as he was under the water, saw the extended arm of his Savior reaching. Come on, Peter. You can do this. And you can do this through me. He rescues, he saves. That's, that's what he does. So he came to save, and he came to save us specifically. You, personally, me, personally, whether you're watching online, whether you're sitting in the pew, Jesus came to save, and He still comes to save, and He comes to save you. And so the question is, what is He saving you from? He came to save you from sin. When He came into the world, the angel told Joseph this in a dream. Joseph, son of David, this is chapter 1, verse 20. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, sometimes we skip over this point that that Jesus was a Savior and He came to save you and I, but there is something that He came to save you from. And if you don't get here, you can never fully realize the depth and the breadth of the love of God through Jesus the Christ. Because sin is something that you and I can't ever undo by ourselves. That that word that you said, the cruelty that you gave, the the pride that you have, the anger that you're full of, the lust that you continually fall towards, the the, the adultery in your heart, the the drunkenness, and, and the lists go on and on. You can feel bad for those things. You can feel sorry for those things. You can feel remorse for those things. But the one thing you can't do is undo those things. And it, and it doesn't help that, that, that we in our culture kind of minimize, gloss over. I mean, I catch myself doing it sometimes. We, we say, well, these are poor choices, and these are, these are mistakes, and these are whoopsie-daisies. But until we understand the sinfulness of sin, we'll never understand the glory and the beauty of the Savior. I want you to turn to, to a story of a church found in the letter of 1 Corinthians. We're going to go to chapter 6. This is the church with problems. These were not uh, technical glitches where one person comes up in front of the other, those kind of problems. These were deep problems. As you read through the letter, Paul's addressing all of these many, multifold from false teaching to sin to all sorts of division, all of these problems that they have. 
And, and Paul not only points out the sin, but he does something quite beautiful. And I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 9. You can read the whole chapter if you like. It'll give you a fuller understanding. But chapter 6 verse 9 is where we're going to focus. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And a preacher could camp right there, hellfire and brimstone kind of sermon, and browbeat the people about their sin. But Paul, he continues, and he starts with their sin for the purpose of leading them to the Savior. Verse 11, and such were some of you. He reminds them of of where they had been. But mercifully, he reminds them of who saved them. But you were washed. If you watched online or if you were here in person, you saw Amber Jameson put on her Lord in baptism. You watched a, a wonderful, powerful moment when she was reborn into Christ. Not because of anything she had done, but because of everything that Christ had done. She responded to the understanding that she could not undo her sin. She could not save herself. Only Jesus could do that. She was washed. And maybe you've been washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, it's not to focus on our sin, but, but to be saved from your sin, you must view your sin as sin. And I don't care what the sin is. If it's one of those in the list and you're guilty of it, you've got to see sin as sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not designed to make you feel good. I'm, I'm sorry if that wounds your self-esteem. But the book is designed to remind us that we all fall and that sin is sin and there are serious consequences for it. That's God's holy standard of justice. And God offers a Savior who came to save, who came to save us from what? Your sin. He came to wash you and to sanctify you, to make you holy, to justify you through His name, by His power, and through the cross. If you repent, and the word repent, all sorts of definitions, but basically means to agree with God. If you agree that lust is bad, and that you have lust in your heart, to, you, to, to repent of that means you need to come to the Savior. If you agree that homosexuality is a sin, 
and it, it violates God's natural order, God calls you to repent of that. You can be saved from it, but not even until you acknowledge that sin is sin. If you are a thief, if you steal things, and you've stolen things that you cannot ever return, you need to acknowledge that stealing is sin. If you are greedy, and you have greed in your heart, and you're money hungry, and you love money, you need to acknowledge your sin and know that there is a Savior who came and died for that sin. If you struggle with alcohol, you've been drunk, or you're into drug use, and you've lost self-control, you, you can be saved from that, I'm telling you. But you have to begin by acknowledging that your sin is sin. If you engage in sexual immorality, if you are an unmarried person committing sexual acts of any type with another person and you are not married, you need to acknowledge that that is sin. And I'm sorry if that makes you feel bad, but my job is just to preach the book. And this book reminds us that sin is sin. And God, that's not God's will for us. But you need to know that if you're engaged in sexual immorality, that you can find salvation and forgiveness from that if you're willing to repent of it. If you're a liar and you speak the native language of the devil, you need to know that you can be saved from that, but only when you acknowledge Truthfully, that you are a liar. Your sin is what he came to save you from. And he can save you, and he will save you, and he wants to save you. But you, if you have no sin, then you need no Savior. Don't you understand? If you have no sin, that it's, it's just, you know, it's just kind of everybody does it. It's not that bad. We all make mistakes. And if you fail to acknowledge the sinfulness of your sin, then you need no Savior. And Jesus becomes a good man. And Jesus, Jesus becomes a good teacher. And Jesus becomes somebody that, yeah, I kind of like what he says here and here and here. But you fail to realize that that wasn't what he came to do. He came to save you from your sin. And that's why you need a Savior who wants to not only save you from your sin, but he wants to set you free from it. John chapter 3, verse 16, we, we know pretty well. It's a well-known scripture. Football games, you see this, and they hold up John three sixteen, But it sort of falls short because it's not the whole message. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that's a good promise, but, but don't forget verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. But there is now no condemnation, Paul would write to the church at Rome, for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of Spirit has set you free. From the law of sin and death. So much of the Old Testament, the, the, the law specifically, points you to God's high standard of righteousness. And if you read through it 
at some point you realize you can't keep it. Or some people say, you know, if you just live your life by the Ten Commandments, that's pretty good religion. You don't need to go to a church. You don't need to be a part of anything else. Just do your best to keep the Ten Commandments. I have a couple of problems with that. Number one, most people don't even know all Ten Commandments, let alone be able to live by them. Number two, to my knowledge, no one's ever kept all Ten Commandments. And that's a problem because, because if you continue reading about the old law, the only punishment that was just was death. Spiritual death. Separation from God. And number three, there weren't just ten commands. There were well over 600 commands. Now you can try to be righteous by keeping this old law, but that was, that was the problem. We couldn't. And so we needed a Savior. We all fall short. And so because there was one who did perfectly fulfill the law, we can have salvation. We can be saved from sin. We can be set free. If you got your toes a little stepped on, or maybe your heart stepped on just a little bit, because I I mentioned something and you think, oh man, the preacher knows now. How did he find out? I thought I kept it hidden so well. I don't know. God knows. God knows that speaking to a room full and speaking to a, a, a masses online who all fall short and all need a Savior to save them from their sin and be set free from it. It's the story of Jesus is the story of justice and grace and mercy all rolled into one. He fulfilled through His atonement, through His sacrifice. He became a propitiation for our sins. That's what happened. And as violent, as gruel as the cross was, the the, the worst part of it was not the physical suffering. The worst part of it was the spiritual separation between the Father and the Son. And He did that so that God could be just. And then God could take the punishment that was upon him and use that to atone for our sins. And by his wounds, we are healed. He came to save. He came to save us. He came to save us from sin. And he came to set us from, save us from sin and to set us free. Turn to John chapter 8. If you're following along in, in the Bible for a story about a woman whose name we don't know, but whose actions we do. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. She wasn't really, the the point of her being there was to be used as a pawn, to be used to trap Jesus. But this is a real woman with a real soul who had done something that she couldn't undo. And she needed a Savior. She was guilty. The law stood to condemn her. There were men with stones in their hands gripped so tightly their knuckles were white, ready for some good old-fashioned justice. And Jesus asked the question, whoever's without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, the men, knowing, knowing that they all too had fallen short, Let go of their stones. 
And they're in the middle of this scene of, of, of all of these drop stones is this woman, sinful, condemned, guilty, and Jesus, sinless, perfect, merciful. In verses, eight, uh, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 8, John records this. Jesus, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Go now and sin no more, some translations say. What do you think her reaction was in that moment? I don't know what your sin is. When you come to that moment, when you realize you can't undo what's been done, that you need a Savior. There's this beautiful, powerful moment when I believe a person comes face to face in a repentant heart, wanting to change, wishing they could undo what's been done. And Jesus simply calls them to leave their sin. And that condemnation will not be found with him. Because that wasn't what he came to do. Wonderful, merciful Savior, gracious Redeemer and Friend, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men. Oh, you rescue the souls of men. Wonderful, merciful Savior. May we be convicted of our sin. And like the woman, turn to Jesus. He is your only hope and He's my only hope as well. Oh, what a Savior. What a Savior when He could have condemned us. When He could have thrown the stone. When He could have lashed out. When He could have read her the riot act. And He showed her mercy. That's a beautiful picture of Jesus. Many want Jesus as Savior. But to have Jesus as Savior, you must obey Him as Lord. There's no other way. You can't have the wonderful, merciful Savior until you yield your heart in obedience to the Christ. This morning, if you have sin in your life, and you realize that it's sin, and it needs to change, and it needs to stop, because you're convicted in your heart, you need to know that God knows your sin, and He wants to save you from it. But you can't save yourself. And you can't ignore it, and it's not going to go away on its own. You have to deal with it. And the good news is that God dealt with it at the cross. And so my question is, are you going to come to the wonderful, merciful Savior? Are you going to yield your heart and your life fully to Him? Are you just going to ignore it? 
Are you just going to pretend it's not that bad? Are you just going to listen to the lies of the enemy and say, you know what, it's fine, it's fine. This morning, if you are convicted in your heart of your sin, here's what I want you to do. Immediately as we sing this song, I want you to go to the back and I want you to find one of our shepherds. And they're going to talk with you and they're going to pray with you. And I'll, I'll go ahead and ask the shepherds. I don't know which shepherds are up, but go ahead and stand up, guys, and, and head to the back of the door so people can see who the shepherds are. And, and if you are convicted this morning of your sin and you are tired of ignoring it and you're tired of sitting here, you're tired of watching online and doing nothing about your sin, we want to call you to the Savior. He is your only hope. But the good news is he's wonderful and merciful. And you can have salvation, you can find repentance, you can find hope through Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, the only way to do that is to do what Jesus said to do. To believe, to be baptized into Christ. Just like Amber did last Sunday. You can do that this Sunday. You can do that whenever you are ready. But you've got to do something about your sin. The problem is anything that you can do won't measure up. It's only through Jesus. And the only way into Jesus is to be reborn, to be washed, to be sanctified, to be buried with him, to let him pay the price, and to let him say to you, go and leave your life of sin. We're going to sing a song. And in that moment, uh, if you have a spiritual need, whatever it might be, you can go to the back. And if you don't have a need, that's okay. We're going to remember this morning what Jesus came to do. Whatever your need might be, please, please deal with it. Don't let it hang on any longer. Come to the wonderful, merciful Savior. If you have any need, why don't you come? Let's stand and sing.